The Bible, uh, for me, is a guidebook. I think it's inspired by God, and I do think it's filled with inaccuracies. And you'll see things in there that remind you of yourself, and it'll make you really want to change. You realize that that Bible's not lying to you, but it's telling you truth. Just a storybook written by some people about some character. There's plenty of things that even if you don't believe in God, there's plenty of things in the Bible that can improve your life. I personally don't think everything should be taken literally. The Bible? Mm, that's controversial. <laughs> Thank you for asking. The Bible's still here. It, this book is almost 2,000 years old. It, it still exists for some reason, and to me, that stands out. That means something. It's not coincidence. So today we're going to explore one of the most frustrating questions. Uh, frustrating because I know RCC and you love your friends. You're not taking this book to the clubs on the weekends and beating people over the head with it. You need to repent. You love your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers. And so when somebody sits across from you at a, uh, at a restaurant or over a cup of coffee and they ask you this question, is the Bible reliable? Uh, you don't know what to say. It's a tough question, as that gal said. It's, it's a little controversial. Yeah, welcome to Jesus' life, for sure, it is. So we're going to explore that question today. Is the Bible reliable, or is it just uh, kind of a sacred text for a few people that, you know, they needed something to get through a really hard season called the Roman Empire, so they made up this character, Jesus? Or is this something that we can stake our life on? Uh, I, I've heard in my lifetime many things, but I'll share three of those with you. If you've said these uh, to your friends, it's okay, this is a safe place, but don't ever say these again, okay? Here's the first response I've heard. Uh, I believe the Bible is reliable because my mom and dad told me, well, aren't you special? If that's true, that means any child born in any part of the world in any religion, well, they can say that about their faith as well. My, my parents raised me to believe this, so of course I'm going to believe it. Problem is, your parents have lied to you. You remember when you were little and it was snowing? This is New England, so you remember that. Some of you start twitching when you think about the snow, and you're running outside to throw snowballs at your friends' faces, and your mom or dad yells, get back in here. You need to put something on your head, or you'll what? You'll catch a cold. Then your little fourth grade self goes to school, and you take this class called science, and they tell you a cold is a virus. doesn't matter if there's anything on your head. You're going to catch it or not, regardless if you have something on your head. Just because your mommy and daddy told you to believe a certain religion or a certain way doesn't actually make it true. What about this? Well, I tried it, and it worked for me. Oh, man. <laughs> um, <laughs> the illogicalness, I made up a word, of that is so wide, you can drive a truck through it. Great. You, you know, I've had uh, friends here that are in AA. My dad went to AA, and part of that program is you have to find a higher power, right? I tried it. It worked for me. Well, he, here's the deal. If that's your answer, then... Anybody can try anything, and if it's pragmatically working for them, then it must be right. Uh, hold off on the photo, guys. Uh, I want to tell you a story. Uh, there was a young man born in Michigan uh, into a large family, actually, and uh, his father was murdered at a young age, and his mom <coughs> uh, really struggled with her mental health and so was uh, institutionalized. <coughs> and so the question becomes, 
what do we do with our kids? I think there were like six of them total. I can't remember the number. So some of them went to live with their family, and some of them were, uh, went into the foster care system. When this gentleman's uh, sister became old enough, she took in this guy that I'm going to reveal in just a moment, and uh, he moved to, to Mass and lived with his sister, uh, but he got into a, long, a lot of trouble. He was a liar, a thief, a robber, a gangbanger, a pimp, uh, a gambler, and he landed himself in prison, as those uh, behavior lifestyles tend to do. And when he was in prison, I think it was a fellow um, prison uh, guy, and he said, you know, you need to get your life right. You need to bow your knee to the Messiah. Which, when someone in prison is telling you that, you should probably listen if they're giving you advice about religion and your life and its behaviors. And he, like a lot of men do with religion, you know, it's fine for my wife, it's fine for the kids. Uh, He said, I will never bow the knee to the Messiah. I am the captain of my own soul, the master of my own domain. This is my world. You are all living it. I bow down to nobody. Uh, He recounts going to sleep one night and an angel (laughs) came to him. And the angel said, you need to bow to the knee. Your life is out of control. Wakes up, gives his life to the Messiah. Because of that, he gets out of prison early on good behavior, starts over hundreds of wor- uh, houses of worship. Uh, there are street names after him. He became a minister. His name is Malcolm X. And his, his, his Messiah is the Honorable Dr. Elijah Muhammad. He tried Islam, and it worked for him. Kind of. He was later in his life murdered because of the things that he was catching on about his Messiah. And a lot of people believe that he was executed by his faith community for what he was finding out. But Malcolm X tried it, and it worked for him. So that has to be true if that's your your logic. The the other uh, statement I've heard is, um, I believe, from like Christians, uh, I believe... The Bible is reliable because it's God's word. Well, that's great. I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. I don't believe the Bible is divinely inspired. I don't believe that, um, you know, Jonah and the whale actually happened. I definitely don't believe in a snake talking to Adam and Eve. And it's really hard, right? When we give these answers to our friends, we don't know what to say. And so we just kind of give some answer. Excuse me. Uh, the best we can. So what's a really good answer? Well, let me tell you why you came today. In the book of Second Peter, well, Ben, you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible. That's circular reasoning. Hold on. I got something for you at the end. Also, you don't ask a lion to defend itself. You let it run loose. It doesn't need to be defended. In Second Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 16 through following, Peter gives us, I would think, the best answer for why the Bible is historically reliable, regardless, this is important, whether or not you follow Jesus. Okay, that's really critical. Because if the Bible is true, then that needs to allow our ears to give a a, a closer listen to the person and the work of, of Jesus. And so this is what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, 16 and following. For we do not cleverly, uh, we do not follow cleverly devised stories. So the Bible's not made up, according to Peter. When we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, 
but we were eyewitnesses. It's critical. Of his majesty, he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him in the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard a voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have a prophetic message talking about the Bible uh, as something completely reliable, or depending on your translation, more reliable. So something happened on that sacred mountain that, is, that, is not, uh, that was great, but the Bible is more reliable than a feeling or an event, which I'll get to that later in the sermon. You would do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, so the, I don't follow the Bible because it's made up and the translations, which we'll get to. But here's what Peter says to that. For prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. All right. You need to hang with me because this is really, really important stuff if you have friends that care about uh, this question. The first thing out of the gate, Peter says, here, let me talk about what the Bible is not. The Bible is not a book of made-up stories with unicorns and rainbows and everyone holds hands and feels good about themselves. Peter says, I am an eyewitness to the things that Jesus did. Now, I'm a human, so I can't be everywhere Jesus was. So we interviewed other people who saw Jesus. This is very important. I'll tell you why in just a second. Who saw Jesus that verify what we saw and what other people saw about Jesus. Well, let me tell you some things that the Bible is not. Just I've heard in conversation uh, with people. The Bible is not a science book. Stop asking uh, people to defend the Bible scientifically. I can't read the Bible or come to terms with the Bible because I'm in medicine or I'm a scientist or I'm a chemist. And the Bible doesn't scientifically prove uh, the, or doesn't agree with modern day science or modern day medicine. Here's the problem. The Bible is not a science book. It's a historical document. Nobody would ever say scientifically, I don't think they would, prove to me that George Washington was our first president. You can't because he's like dead. And the scientific method has to be observable and what? Repeatable. You have to disprove the Bible for what it claims to be. Uh, and guys like C.S. Lewis and, and Tolkien started out as atheists, tried to do that, and then became Christian and wrote some of our most greatest works. Did you know that C.S. Lewis and Tolkien were best buddies? Lord of the Rings, and did you know that they would share a pint together and talk about their theology and their works? Kind of cool, free info uh, that just came to my mind. Also, the Bible is, uh, oh, let me, let me say this, this, is really critical. You disprove the Bible through the evidentiary method, all right? So when you look at the Bible, you are not Bill Nye the science guy, who I don't really think he was a scientist to begin with. You are more like a prosecuting uh, attorney working for the DA's office. You've been assigned a case, uh, so there was a big party, uh, gunshots went, uh, went, rang out, someone is dead in the street. Now you got to figure out if he or she, let's just say he, you got to figure out that he did it or not. <clears throat> what, do you, how, what is your approach to prove that the defendant did it? You can't repeat it, because that would be another crime in and of itself, and they'd have to come back from the dead. It's no longer observable unless if it was caught on camera. You have, to you have to prove it through the evidentiary method, 
Okay, so allegedly a gun went off. Where's the murder weapon? How many people were there at the scene? Who saw what? Uh, let's bring all of those people down, you know, downtown, as they say in the cop shows, and let's interview them, and let's see if people are saying the same story, and let's see who knows uh, the defendant, because <coughs> they may have a special interest to lie, and then let's figure out <coughs> what the defendant and uh, let's, let's figure out what the defendant did probably hours leading up to that and what happened hours after that. And let's see if we uh, can eliminate an alibi that would prove that he was innocent because we need to interview everybody. And then we're really, we're really um, thinking about the timeline. Who said, uh, who told us where they were and what they were doing and can we verify that through what other people saw the night of that shooting, you, you, you kind of you get, you get what I'm saying? That's how you disprove the Bible. The Bible is not a science book, uh, oddly enough. It's a historical document that claims to write about the life and death of Jesus. I'll go through these quickly. It's not a manual for life. I think a gentleman said that in the bumper video. It's not something that you take on vacation and you take a selfie of your feet, you know, you know those, those friends that are annoying, I'm on the beach, hashtag blessed life, and they've got this, the book of Psalms out, you know, that, that's not what the Bible's for, and the Bi- I actually heard this in a sermon, I was a youth minister at the time, so I didn't say anything, but my teeth were grinding, uh, the Bible is not a playbook to get you out of a tough spot, that's what 911 is for, okay, don't read the Bible when you're in a pinch to get yourself out of it, because you're going to miss the focus of the Bible, which we'll talk about in a second. And the Bible is also, it's not a legal contract, which is why you and your friends don't read it if you don't read it. Because there's a lot of uh, guilt with religion, right? There's a lot of guilt with theology. Well, you know, I, um, <laughs> I, I did a lot of bad stuff in my 20s or 30s or whatever. I would never go into a church. It would burn down. I'm definitely not going to read the Bible. So what is the Bible? Well, The Bible claims to be a historical document telling the story of Jesus, written down by eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and ministry. So the Bible is like a library. It's a collection of books. There's 66 books uh, in the Bible written by 40 authors over, depending on what you read, 12 to 1,500 years on three different continents, written in three different languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, uh, and supported by 23 thousand archaeological digs to confirm the truth of the Bible. That's a lot of interviews. Is the Bible historically reliable? Uh, Yeah, it is. Not because the Bible said it was, but because of historical evidence that we've discovered. What What does Jesus say about the Bible? I feel like we should probably ask him. Well, he's having a conversation with religious leaders as he did a lot in his day. And he said in John 5, 39, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Did you just hear that? Jesus said, you read the Bible, you go to your Bible studies, you sit in Bible class, you listen to sermons, thinking that by reading this book, you have life. You don't. Jesus would be a bad Sunday school teacher in our churches. (laughs) He goes on to say, these are the scriptures that testify about me. I'm the one that gives you life. 
This book does not give you life. The content, the main character of this book, does give you life. Let me tell you something. It might break your heart, but it's true. The Bible is not about, was, is not about us. It's about Jesus. The Bible was written for us so that we might discover Jesus and have our lives transformed. There's a lot of people that know a lot of facts about the Bible, yet they've never baptized anybody in their life. They've never invited a friend to church. They've never stepped into a generosity campaign, let alone gave. You see what I'm saying? Like Jesus is like, you're just focused on being really intelligent about, at the time, uh, arguing the Torah, the first five books of your Old Testament. But you're not really interested, which is why the book was written, for life transformation. You search the scriptures in, in that context. You search the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, and we don't have time to get into this, and some other Jewish writings. And that in them, you think by reading a book will give you life? That's called self-help improvement at Barnes & Noble. Jesus says, no, the Bible is about me. I'm the God that gives you life. If you're looking to read the Bible to have a better marriage, to be better parents, and to be better kids, you're going to fail. What Jesus says, you need to have a Christ-centered marriage, Christ-centered parenting, and Christ-centered students. How does that happen? you got to get to know Jesus. you got to get to know him. And so how does Jesus view the Bible? John 10, 35, Scripture cannot be broken. Uh, I hate tying my shoes. <laughs> Uh, because there's that little knot that if you tie them so tight, it's really hard to, to kind of unravel or untie. <laughs> um, we played a game in middle school. I'm embarrassed to tell you this, guys. Um, we should not have done that. But the game went like this. All the middle school boys and all the male adult leaders would stand in a circle and like lock arms. And one of the adult leaders in our student ministry goes, I know a good idea. Let's get all the males to lock arms and then invite all the middle school girls and female adult leaders to try and unlock their arms. And the, the, uh, the, the last person or the last two guys who have locked arms wins because they survived the longest. Terrible. I don't, we're never playing that game here. Andrew will be fired if he plays that game here. I mean, if I have to tell you why, you're totally out of modern day culture. Jesus says that's how airtight the scriptures are. Jesus says that's how airtight that little knot that you're, you know, I, I'm too lazy to bend over and untie. According to Jesus, scripture cannot be untied, cannot be unbroken or unsealed then resealed. Well, let's, hey, fair game. Let's see if the guy's lying, right? So I want to talk about secular, now you've got to hang with me. This is important, Okay. I'm not apologizing for what I'm about to share with you. I'm just telling you it's really important if you love your friends well and they've asked you about this. This stuff is really important. So I want to talk about secular works like Roman and Greek works versus New Testament manuscripts. Here's why. All right, if you're in high school, you're going to be a freshman soon and you're going to go to college and there's, there'll be a, a male or female professor that says, welcome to Philosophy 101. Some of you are laughing, you know this is going. Welcome to world religion. You are an idiot if you, are, if you believe in Christianity. Whew. So what happens then is they come home for Christmas or they come home for Easter. And they're like, man, we, we need to get together. Can we, can we get a coffee? Sure, love, love to. What's, what's going on? I don't know if I'm a Christian anymore. Okay, why? 
well, I, I took this like philosophy 101 class, when, which I'm like, and if you take a philosophy 101 class, you should have no right to speak. <laughs> um, here, here, let me tell you why. Uh, because my professor, who has a doctorate in philosophy and logic and world religion, said, I'm an idiot if I believe in Christianity. Parents, this is what your kids are walking into. You're not an idiot if you believe in Christianity. You're not an idiot if you believe that the Bible is historically reliable. It just doesn't get airtime <clears throat> at the collegiate level. And so if the Bible is true, then it should be able to withstand any collegiate or academia or any kind of question at an Ivy League school. Like a- any book of the Bible, or a- sorry, any sacred text of any religion should be able to withstand the scrutiny of whatever questions come at it. So this is why, uh, parents, this is so critical for you to know. Students, this is why it's so critical for you to know. It's, it's a little, the question's a little boring. I get it. It's dry. That's something you would want to get out of bed early to find out this is what we're talking about. But it's so critical. <clears throat> Let me show you why. Here are some uh, early writings and sacred texts or texts that uh, we all believe to be true because it, it happened. There's no dispute. Homer's Iliad was written in 800 B.C., Earliest copy was found in 400 B.C. with about a 400-year time gap. Pay attention to that airtight alibi, that timeline that I mentioned earlier. Uh, Tatticus was a Roman senator, check this out, I know I'm a geek, who wrote about first-century Roman culture when this book was written. He's not a Christian, but he cares about doing a good job. And historians tell the truth whether or not you like it or not, or you're going to be mad and start a blog and and say, woe is me. Their job is to tell history. Should have drank decaf. (laughs) (laughs) Written in 100 AD, earliest copy, 1050 AD, with a 950-year time gap, with 31 copies. Well, let's talk about how stupid you are for believing Christianity. John's Gospel, originally written around AD 75, depending on what commentaries you read, earliest copy found in AD 25, 50-year time gap. Now, if you're trying someone for murder, bingo, that's a pretty narrow time gap. You know what that means? What that means is, if that's true, which it is historically, it doesn't matter if you think it's true or not, it happened, that you could have been a child in the first century, right? In diapers, going to the bathroom, depending on your parents for everything. And then later in your life, <clears throat> could have died an old man and an old woman. And in the time uh, span of your life, the original manuscripts of John was found, and then by the time you die, the entire gospel was found. In your life, hello, anybody, in your lifetime. Don't tell me that I'm stupid for believing the historical reliability of the scriptures, because I, and we don't have, I mean, I'm going to go longer than the seven minutes I have left, I'm just telling you, but I don't even need the Bible to prove the Bible. There are non-Christian Roman historians that could care less about Jesus, and that's a good thing, because all they care about is writing good history and telling the story as they see it through the eyes of eyewitnesses. Now, they tell the same story as the New Testament gospel writers, they just believe differently about Jesus, mainly that he really wasn't. God. So let's, let's uh, put the New Testament up to these original manuscripts. Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, 1800, Tatticus, 3100, Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, 12 manuscripts. And yet nobody says you're an idiot. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? All right, I'm going to move on. 
Aristotle's Poetics, 10 copies. The New Testament, over 6,000 manuscripts with a time frame of 25 years. And yet, in your child's freshman philosophy 101 class or whatever, they're idiots for believing in the historical life. We have more context for the New Testament than we do of other Greek and Roman ancient writings. I mean, come on. Are you serious? Yes, the Bible is historically reliable regardless whether or not you've come to believe that Jesus is God. Which is why in 2 Peter 1.19, Peter says, we also have the prophetic message as something, say it with me, completely reliable. Let's do it again. Completely reliable. Like, I'm not making this stuff up, Peter says. You will do well to pay attention to it. In 2006, uh, Christians lost their ever-loving mind because of the movie The Da Vinci Code. I didn't watch it. I mean, I love Tom Hanks. He's one of my favorite actors, right? Um, shout out to Forrest Gump and everything else that he did. But the, ne- the story behind that is from Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code. And Mr. Brown uh, wrote, a co- uh, wrote a book, uh, maybe that's graceful, wrote a book about how uh, early or maybe first century or early monks basically uh, rewrote the scriptures and other, um, when something's in the Bible that means, I don't have time to get into it, it means it's canonized, which it's legitimate text, and then it's in the Bible. So they, they, they stole the scriptures and all these manuscripts and put it back, and nobody caught them, and now all of a sudden you see <clears throat> in 06, that's yeah, right about when Zuckerberg and I got out of college, so Facebook was starting to become a thing. Then you see articles on Facebook, and Jesus was married, and, <clears throat> you know, uh, the Gospel of Thomas came out. L- listen, listen, let me tell you, <clears throat> could that have happened? Sure. Let me tell you the likelihood of that happening, okay? Because the other objection to, is the Bible historically reliable, is the translation thing, which I'm about to tackle here in a second. When men and women who have degrees in linguistics get together to translate the Bible for a 2020 version of the NIV, they don't go back to the last year the NIV was translated. They go back to the over 6,000 manuscripts that we have of the New Testament and over 20,000, which you don't have time to get into, of the Old Testament. And they look at all the 20,000 archaeological digs that prove the historical liability of the story, you kind of get what I'm saying, of the Bible. So when there's a new translation comes out, they're not going back to like 1995, you know, NIV Teen Study Bible. Anybody remember those? It's like my first introduction to the Bible. They go back to the original languages. So could the monks stole the scriptures? Yes, of course. Let me tell you about the likelihood of that. Number one, they have to find all Old Testament and New Testament manuscripts, steal them, translate it however they want, get it back without being noticed. Now, secondly, they have to steal them. Not only do they have to know Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, now they have to know Syriac, Syriac, Coptic, and Latin, translate all, like be familiar with all those six languages, mess up whatever they want, send it back without being identified. Do you see what I'm saying? Like if you're like, come on, it's really, I mean, this is gonna be to cover a lie. Here's one more fun fact. It's fun for me. It's fun for me. It's definitely a fact. Um, the early church fathers who wrote about uh, church history, 
wrote so much commentary, you guys, on the New Testament that we don't even need our Bibles. Like, I know the internet's a thing, and you should download the Bible app. There's tons of reading plans for sure. But if the, if the, if the internet lost its mind, that would probably be a good thing, and all the physical Bibles kind of went up to heaven or whatever, we have, are you ready for this? No, you're not. This is going to be awesome. 98% of our New Testament written by our early church fathers, Com- commentaries of the New Testament by our church fathers. There's like 11 verses that didn't get commentary on. 98%. So you're one of these weird monks that you've got to find the manuscripts, you've got to learn six, you've got to know six languages. Oh, oops, hey Bill, you forgot to, n- now we've got to find all of the early church fathers' commentaries on the New Testament, uh, not show our ink work, get them back to where we found them, and hopefully no one saw us. I'm exhausted explaining this to you, but I'm doing it because I love you. I don't want us to be a church that's like, oh, the pastor said the Bible's true. No, no, no. <laughs> it's historically reliable based on Christian and non-Christian historians. But there's something better than that. The Bible is just not some black and white robotic historical document. The Bible is the special revelation that Jesus has come to die and rise again. Notice what uh, Peter says at the end of 2 Peter uh, 1, 20-21. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but the, but the prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, how does, you know, going back to the whole, you know, district attorney, you got to figure out if this guy actually committed the murder. <clears throat> how does, how do 40 authors over 1,500 years on three separate continents, they never met each other, tell the same story? Because we already, we already know through history that it's, it, it, it does t- tell the same story. What Peter says, and, and this, is a tri- this is a trip, if you're not a Jesus follower, like I, I get, like this is a trip, right? They were guided by the Holy Spirit to say the same story. I'll prove it to you. In Psalm 22, a musician talks about the crucifixion. A musician. The horrible, wretched, historical, in my opinion, worst form of human capital punishment. A lot of musicians I know are pacifists, would have no interest in describing capital punishment to its listeners. And yet in Psalm 22, among other things, you, hear the, you see this lyric, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? <clears throat> How can a musician describe the horrible, wretched, historical reality of the crucifixion when he's never seen it in his lifetime. Crucifixion was not a thing when this uh, song and this uh, chapter were written. It was invented much later by the Persians and made, um, well, for lack of a better word, the Romans perfected it, meaning they made it even more grueling to crucify somebody. Not only does the musician of Psalm 22 write down the exact words that Jesus cried out, interestingly enough, he busted out in a song, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
he tells us in Psalm 22 exactly how the Messiah, when he comes, which I believe in at RCC, we believe to be Jesus, he describes how he will actually die on the cross, because I'm not going to get into it, because I didn't warn you parents, and I know kids are in here, there are multiple ways to kill someone through a crucifixion. How does he nail it 100%? Psalm 22 was written a thousand years before Jesus was murdered, because Peter is telling the truth. The Holy Spirit guided those writers. And one of my favorite miracles of all of the New Testament is this, the resurrection. This is a lengthy quote, but I want to hang in there. This is important. Also, this is a great book to read. N.T. Wright, who wrote The Resurrection of the Son of God, says this. The early Christians did not invent the empty tomb and the meetings or sightings of the risen Jesus in order to explain a faith they already had. Hey, hey, Peter, hey, Peter, man, come here, come here. here. Okay, you know how we've been telling this story about this made-up guy, Jesus? Let's kill him, and then three days later, we'll tell everyone he rose from the dead. That'll be a great story. <clears throat> what N.T. Wright is saying is what, the, was what the first century historians wrote down. The resurrection didn't happen to accommodate a made-up story. Listen to what N.T. Wright says. They developed that faith because of the occurrence and conversion of these two phenomenon. Their faith was an outgrowth of the fact that Jesus was murdered and he rose again three days later. Now check this out. Nobody was expecting this kind of a thing. No kind of conversion experience would have generated such ideas. Nobody would have invited it. No matter how guilty or forgiven they felt, no matter how many hours they poured over the scriptures, to suggest otherwise is to stop doing history and to enter into a fantasy world. The foolishness of the cross and the resurrection was the exact opposite of the myth that writers of fiction needed to produce to impress either Jews or pagans in the first century world. That is powerful stuff. Which is why Peter says in 2 Peter 1, 18-19, we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him. So Peter, oh man, it's so good. Peter was with Jesus on the sacred mountain. That's, we don't have time to get into it. It's in Matthew. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration. We also have a prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it. Hey, listen to me. Peter said, I saw Jesus as God in his divine form on the Mount of Transfiguration. In America, we love feelings. We chase feelings. And there are a lot of students, listen to me, students, that are jacked up about going to Berea this winter for camp. And, And we're so after the spiritual high, aren't we? Yes, and we can't wait. Like, we, we feel so far from God <clears throat> that we miss that connection. And, and, man, there are so many people in our church that need to be baptized, but, but the, the thing that they won't cross over is not intellectual. They, they know who Jesus is. They made up their mind, but it's, a, I, don't, I don't feel him in my life. And that's very real. You know what Peter said? I saw Jesus as God. I think I trump everybody, regardless of a mission trip you went on, a camp, uh, a weekend retreat. But notice what he says. Notice what Peter says, the guy who always says stupid stuff that gets him in trouble. Notice what he says. He says this, 
we also have a prophetic message as something completely more reliable. I saw Jesus as God, and yet there's a more reliable way for me to stay faithful to Jesus. Church, read your Bible. Read your, this is what Peter is saying. I mean, can you imagine the spiritual high you would get in the whiteness on your face? The shock you would have if you saw Jesus in his divine form, and yet Peter says, well, that was awesome. But my life is going to happen, and my depression, my anxiety, whatever that thing is, is going to, and I'm going to be, as the song says, prone to wonder and leave my faith. And Peter says, there's a more reliable way to stay faithful. Stop chasing feelings, Peter says, and simply read your Bible. It's the reliable word of God that was written to tell the story of Jesus in the hopes that you would understand that it was written for you, that there is a God that came to die and rise again for your sins. And there is a nature about you that you would rather avoid and not talk about, which is the very thing that Jesus went after. Read your Bible. It's the historical, reliable word of God. So as I close today, I'm going to give you three next steps. Do one of them, please, or all of them if you want. The first one is read your Bible. Surprise. Start in the Gospel of John. If you're like, I don't know where to start, start in the Gospel of John. Uh, get out your phones this afternoon and download the Bible app. Look up a reading plan. And here's how I read the Bible. I learned this in middle school. I do it today. It's called the SOAP method, right? Write out the scripture. Get a pen and a notebook. Write out the scripture you're reading. Not the whole, just a reference book, chapter, verse. And then write out as many observations. So read it as if you've never read the Bible the first time, because it will help you talk to your friends who've never read the Bible at all. So when you're reading John and the name Jesus pops up, who is Jesus? Why do people like him? Why do people hate him? And then write, write out some application. Like, how is Jesus offensive in this text? How is he encouraging in this text? What, 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 what twisted ideas do I have about myself and about Jesus that kind of need a, a little more redirecting and end with prayer? We have to be reading our Bible. Like, I don't, there's no other sexier way to say it. Like, you got to read your Bible. But you also have to read about the Bible. And I want to give you three resources that, were help, that have been helpful for me. Uh, for three different aspects about the Bible. The first one is this, how we got the Bible. If you are just interested in like the nuts of bowl, like how did the Bible actually get together? This is literally like a 100 to 200 page read. Like you can crush it in an afternoon, definitely before the Pats beat the Ravens tonight. It's a really short, it, it's an easy read. If you're interested in um, cultural background, uh, if you're interested in like what books of the Bible, like you don't read the Gospel of John the same way you do Revelation, right? You know what I'm saying? Uh, or, or even Genesis. And so if you're interested in what the author is trying to communicate, if you're interested in the first century culture, pick up the book, Grasping God's Word. There's actually a workbook with it. If you're in a life group, man, this would be a great life group study for you and your group. Uh, sometimes the worst question we ask is, what does the Bible mean to me? We need to ask, what, what, is, what is the writer trying to communicate? If I'm an author and I wrote something and you buy it and you're like, I really love what Ben said here. I'm like, yeah, I didn't, it's not in there. I, you know what I'm saying? Like, what is the author trying 
to communicate. And lastly, uh, if you really want to geek out, this is my favorite book, The Historical Reliability of the Gospels by Craig Blomberg. Uh, th- and, and it is that. It's like 500 pages. Do not read this before you go to bed. It'll help you fall asleep. But, but it is attainable. You can read this. You don't need a theology degree to get through this book. But if you are interested in New Testament criticism and historical background, this is a great resource. Like, we cannot be people that do not read the Bible or read about the Bible. We just can't. Um, thirdly, follow the God of the Bible. Now, here's a trip. I went to church one Sunday to hear a sermon on the historical liability of the Scripture, and the pastor asked me to become a Christian. Yep, because in John 5, Jesus says, when you read the Bible, you should find me. I'm here to give you life. And so if you've been a part of this church for the last couple months or a year, and you've never went public with your faith in baptism, man, fill out that connect card. Fill out that next step card in front of you and drop it off at the connection point uh, on your way out. We do have historical, reliable document about a living God that we, ran away, that we ran away from, who came after us, was murdered, died the worst possible death, rose again three days later. This thing was written in three languages, 1,500 years, three continents, 40 authors, all telling us the same thing, that Jesus died and rose again. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, thanks so much for your word, the truth of your word. Uh, we thank you that you have a high, high view of Scripture And to be honest, you have a higher view of Scripture than most of us, because there's some things in our lives, (laughs) really like kind of how we're living, even for me, that we're like, "Ah, I wish the Bible wasn't so clear about that. But but you seem to be pretty clear on how you view Scripture. And so we we thank you for your honesty, and we ask for your patience as we uh, learn to process this heavy but necessary and great truth. We thank you that your word is not out to make us better people or more religious, but to be loved by the living God. We thank you so much for that. We thank you so much that you took time, 1,500 years and 40 different authors, three different continents. You took the time to tell us how much you love us and how so quick we are to wander away from you. We thank you for your faithfulness. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.